Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, more on energy use. But if you think we've got too hung up on climate change lately, well, listen anyway, because today is more about finding a more efficient form of energy, and the argument is that the answer is increasingly solar. So, it's available everywhere. The technology to capture is improving all the time. Why not use it? The only thing that's stopping it rolling out faster is politics, vested interests, and the availability of finance. And perhaps they're all one and the same thing. So, is solar the future? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, we talk, we've talked a bit about energy on the podcast, just how central it is to the economy, in particular, uh, the efficiency with which we use it. And that's taken us on to the topic of climate change and how close we are to a, a, a point of a serious economic downturn as a result of it, something which climate change deniers will, of course, deny. And we have some of those in our audience, those who think that climate change is as much of a con job as neoclassical economics. And back in June, Steve Bannister joined us to talk about his modelling of how soon climate change would impact the economy, and uh, to which the answer seemed to be, well, it's going to impact the economy a lot, and it's going to happen very soon. And the answer was we needed to fix it with a new source of energy and that conventional renewables weren't going to be quick enough. And we need to look at ideas which had previously been dispelled, uh, like he said, cold fusion. Well, today... Another guest, Omar Chima, is with us. He's the managing director of Avantive, a company that provides advice on clean energy product, uh, projects for multinational corporations, for governments, for startups, for investors. And he joins us. His concern is less about climate change and more about sustainability. How many resources can we use at the expense of other species on the planet, for example? And he joins us. And Steve is here, too, of course. So uh, let's start with you, Omar. I mean, how do we even calculate uh, the point at which we are using too many resources, the point at which, you know, the, the point of no return. How, how do we even start to work well, out well, that? I mean, Thanks for having me, Phil, uh, on, on your show. There, there are a few different approaches to how we can how we can estimate and calculate this. I mean, one, one sort of practical approach is to think about how much land, air, and water is required for every energy source. And a few years back, uh, Professor David McKay, the late David McKay, wrote a very sort of revealing book working out from first principles, you just need to know sort of like high school mathematics and physics, what's the footprint for every energy source? Mm. How much how much meter squared of land do you need for wind, solar, other energy, energy sources? And so you can work out from that, you know, if you want to scale up to providing energy for 8 billion people, how much, what's the land footprint which is required? And then you also have fresh water requirements for every energy source. So for example, for coal, you need about two meter, two meter cubes per megawatt hour of electricity produced by coal. So, so you can work out, that's one approach, and then you can work out how many pollutants you're throwing into the, into the atmosphere, into the air. So there's a, that limit, land, air, and water, but there's also another way to calculate it, and that's just using the basic laws of thermodynamics. So I mean, I mean no one disputes the basic laws of thermodynamics. So what we have on, on Earth is 
we're getting a lot of short shortwave radiation from the sun. And my, uh, that's the fusion reaction, which is sustaining life on the planet. Yep. So the shortwave radiation comes in, and then we send out this longwave radiation. But the shortwave radiation has a property, which is that it's very low entropy. And you know, entropy, the easiest way to understand it is just a measure of disorder. And, when we, and we're exporting this disorder, so we're taking this source with low disorder, using it to organize life on the planet, and then we're exporting this uh, high disorder, long wave radiation out of the planet, out of the atmosphere. And that entropy difference, that negative entropy, what some people called negentropy, actually allows us to organize life and live away from equilibrium. Because if you're in equilibrium, basically you're dead. It's the dead. Yes, yes, okay. absolutely. It's the name of the head of the bloody economists who think everything happens in equilibrium. Yeah, yeah so at equilibrium we finish basically, right? It's maximum disorder, nothing's, nothing's growing, nothing's happening, nothing's moving. So to, 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 live, to live away from non-equilibrium, we need this sort of entropy balance so we can export this entropy out of the, out of the atmosphere. Mm. So, so we balance. The, so we're producing entropy all the time on the planet. So when, for example, when you burn a fossil fuel, that we make up for that by exporting the this entropy out of the planet, exporting this disorder out of the planet. So you can work out how much of that ne- negative entropy you need to sustain life on the planet. Now it turns out that, that there is plenty of it, but that's plenty for life in general. When you go up from one trophic level from the humans to from the plants to humans. And and uh, see from plants from plants it's not the human scale. I think about our uh, number three and number four. But if you go up these trophic levels, then the entropy balance becomes quite delicate. So based on that, people have worked out their estimates of what the um, um, how much human life can be sustained on the planet, and and that comes back to how much how uh, what sort of energy sources we can use. And, and how much energy we can produce because yep. the energy is balanced, but the entropy that is, 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 a, is a limiting factor. So you're saying that other species are more susceptible than humans. So we can, I mean, is that why, we, you know, we continue to survive and thrive and, you know, there's more and more of us getting onto the planet, but we're wiping out other species as a result of it. Absolutely. So, so, we, so we are also on the extinction roster. I think we are on there too. But we've, we've wiped out others. There's no fact. There's no dispute about that. I mean, the wild mammals have reduced. Plant life itself has gone down by about a half since since uh, human civilization sort of kicked off. So, so uh, there, there is an extinction roster for the different species, and a lot of them are being wiped out. And we're somewhere on there too. Now, my point of view is, I mean, it's it's. When we didn't know any better, that's fine. We had to use these other energy sources like fossil fuels and uh, also nuclear, which produce which produce these waste materials. But now we have these energy sources like solar, wind, which can produce clean energy. They're cheap, and so we don't need to we don't need to use these other f- fuel sources. There's no there's no need to take the risks. So even if your estimates are off by when climate change is going to uh, really damage human life on the planet. There's just no need to take that risk. But isn't the argument that, you know, those those other alternative fuels through the renewables are just not as energy efficient? I mean, the you know, the, the coal and fossil fuels have been relatively cheap to take out of the ground uh, and the energy that's needed to, to extract them isn't as much as is needed, for example, as, uh, as, as building even the, the resources for a lot of uh, alternative energy. 
Uh, no, no, that's not that's not that's not true any longer. I mean, for and and once again, the the uh, issue is that these the the um, economy of these energy sources it depends very much on scale. Yeah, and I know, I know Steve 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 feels quite strongly about this, and rightly so. But that some of the economics assumptions about how cost scales for these for these different uh, means is just wrong. For example. The cost of solar and wind, it always depended upon how much, what's the scale at which you can implement it. So, for example, when I worked in university and we were commercializing technologies from Imperial College about a, a decade ago, more than a decade ago, about 12, 13 years ago, we would be writing a lot of proposals to the EU for funding, saying that we want to bring the solar the uh, solar photovoltaic system costs down to about a dollar per watt by 2020. And, and, and that we thought was a really challenging target. Right now, the dollar per watt for solar photovoltaic system is already 60 cents a watt. Mm. So, but why do, why do we think that it was that expensive? Because what happened is uh, the silicon production, I mean, the solar, the, um, about 90% of solar photovoltaic systems are made out of silicon, silicon semiconductors. But the silicon industry was entirely geared towards microelectronics back then. There was no demand for solar cells. The main demand for silicon was coming from the microelectronics industry. In the microelectronics industry, it was all about making things, as you know, smaller and smaller so the circuits can work faster. As a result, there were only two or three silicon foundries worldwide. And since, it, and since there were only two or three, the scale was very low, and hence the prices were very high. And everyone was using that static assumption of what the silicon price is. Here's the silicon feedstock price. So here's how low you can get the solar system uh, to how cheaply you can manufacture the solar system. But as soon as these feed-in tariffs were introduced for solar cells, then the scaling up was easy. When the scaling up took place, the price went through the floor. Mm. So did it come? Did it go through the floor to the extent that it was as competitive as fossil fuel power stations? I guess. I guess the issue is as well, isn't it? You know, you you're talking about you're talking about building something from from scratch. We already have. A lot of fossil fuel plants, which are sort of paid for, they've you know they've uh, they've written off their expense, and so you've you've got an an unequal measure, haven't you? In in a way, you know, you're comparing uh, maintaining an existing infrastructure versus creating a new one. Well, that's that's a very good point, but actually, it's it's it's, it's beaten them even in, in that respect. So now, the total cost of a solar plant or a wind plant is less than the marginal cost of operating an existing really coal plant. Yeah. And, and you can just work this out from the fuel cost. I mean, so and the way I like to look at the renewable energy plants, and I, I like to have Steve's view on this, is for me, I mean, the renewable energy, renewable is, of course, a bit of a tricky word, I mean, because what's renewable here? I mean, this, the solar plant and the wind plant, they also have to use materials, right? They have to use materials which convert the photons from the sun and the wind wind gradients into electricity. So, they, so there's also a materials requirement over there. But what's, what's, what's different is when you model it economically, in terms of the economics, there's no variable cost. There's no marginal cost. It's a fuel-free. It's a fuel-free system. And this is just based, I mean, you're just talking about pure expense here, aren't you? You're not talking about the ecological footprint, or is that being factored into it? Or does that make the case even stronger? Yeah, this is just pure expense. I haven't come to the right. ecological footprint yet. This is just right. the pure expense, just the pure financials of it. So just from a pure financial angle, you've got this energy source, which has got no fuel component to it. And I work a lot in the developing countries, and this is what I tell them, that this is a big sort of, should be a big attractive factor for you. 
because it removes your fuel inputs from this from the equation. Yeah, and, and you don't have this variable cost, so you also get a real a good certainty of cost. So once you've set up a solar plant or a wind plant, just just talking pure financials right now, you know with a great deal of certainty what your costs are for the next twenty five years. Whereas you don't get that with a fuel plant, any fuel based plant, because you'll never be able to predict what the fuel price is beyond five years. Do, do you sort of agree with that, Steve? Do you see the distinction? Yes, well, I, I do. And just actually what I want to do a bit of um, going deeper here, because uh, you, you'd be familiar with the concept of the energy cliff. Yeah. And for those who haven't heard of it before, it's an argument that says that uh, you need, a, so of course, you need, you need energy input to get energy out. So what we're basically doing with uh, our mines and within with solar power, we're mining an existing resource of the energy in the planet, whether that's stored in fossil form or it's coming in the solar radiation. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, of course, it costs energy to get that out. So in the case of mining, you've got to dig it up, which takes energy. You have to move it, which takes energy. You, you burn it, which takes en energy to start the fire and so on. All those maintenance costs there. But given the incredible energy density, particularly of oil, uh, when it was first discovered, when you didn't have to dig particularly far, you got an enormous energy return and energy invested. Um, and the argument at the other extreme was, when, and of course, what's been happening over time, as we've mined more of that oil, uh, then we've got to go deeper to get it out. So it takes more energy input to get that. Uh, to get down to it, to get it to come up to the surface and so on. Yeah. Uh, so the energy on return on energy in oil has been falling. Coal also, but coal is so incredibly abundant that I think, I mean, I know you know this better than I do, but I've seen estimates to say that if there were no ecological consequences, which of course is like a neoclassical assumption, but nonetheless, if there were no ecological consequences to burning coal, we could keep on burning it for about 250 years. Is that roughly right? Well, I mean, there's no, there's a, you're right, there's an abundance of coal, but there's not an abundance of fresh water. So with coal, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that's the sort of thing that my dear neoclassical friends completely emit from their models, by the way. So but, it's, but it sounds like from what yeah. Omar's saying, the, 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 yeah. the energy cliff, we're not mm -hmm. going to reach it because, because the, the gain we're going to get from, uh, from renewable energy is now so much, so much greater. Well, that's what yeah. point I want to elaborate on because, again, you see in, in the literature there's an enormous range of estimates of the energy return and energy invested in solar. And if I go back to the uh, the, the most uh, the, the original and the ones which were most worrying, they showed that the energy return and energy invested. Well, they didn't show. They they asserted that the energy return and energy invested in something like solar or wind was of the order of two or three. And in terms of the amount to, to actually be able to maintain an advanced society where most of your people are living on energy, other people have mined. Uh, the general argument was needed an energy return and energy invested of at least five to maintain a, a sophisticated, anything resembling a, a sophisticated society. And a preferable level was 20 or 30. Now, uh, so that initially said, well, you know, solar's really low on the list and wind's really low and they've got to climb up this energy cliff before we get to the point where they're sustainable. And there's just been, a, for example, a recent paper I've seen talking about the energy return and invested in Germany in solar panels, uh, which has been highly disputed, and I'm sure Omar's going to follow up on this one, argued that the energy return was actually negative in the sense that the energy in was about one, energy out was 0.8. I've seen that challenge in saying that the, the study's completely wrong and, in fact, it's much, much higher than that. But what Omar's been saying, I think, and this is what I wanted you to elaborate on in this podcast, is that uh, two things. First of all, the energy return on energy invested, even though it's a very uh, tight concept, is very rubbery when you work it out. And secondly, I think you've been saying that the with a realistic uh, from, from source to 
to use of power, the energy return energy vested on solar and wind is also already much higher than coal and oil of the order of something like about 30. Am I, am I correct there? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, let's, 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 debunk, let's debunk the energy return on investment uh, uh, argument. So this yeah. paper, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally off the mark. And, so, and you don't have to, we don't have to do a very complicated thought experiment to debunk it. I mean, it's very simple. So in a solar system or a wind system, eventually you're selling energy. So anyone who sets up a solar plant or a wind plant, he will charge for it in dollars per kilowatt hour. Kilowatt hour is a commercial unit of electricity. So right now, solar and wind, roughly the cost is the the uh, the price is three dollars per. This is the price, not the cost. Is three three U.S. cents, sorry, per kilowatt hour. That means you sell you're selling the energy of the entire solar system output for three U.S. cents per kilowatt hour. That means all the materials, all the labor, everything which has gone into making that solar system, all the that will include the energy cost. So that energy cost has got to be less than three US cents per kilowatt hour. Otherwise, there's no way you can sell the output for three US cents per kilowatt hour, right? Mm -hmm. That's the price at which you're selling it. So all of the costs into that system must have been less, including the energy cost, must have been less than three US cents per kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. You with me? So obviously, yeah. the energy going in is much less than the energy which is coming out. And so when you work it out, you will find that you get your payback for solar system. And the last payback calculation, which I've seen was in 2012, comprehensive one was something between six months to one year, depending upon whether the solar system is in a sunny area or if it's in a relatively cloudy area like Scotland or someplace. Mm, that's so, a pretty damn fast payback. Yeah, that's very, it's very fast. And then you get, and then you get the, then you've got 24 years free you know, energy, right? So there's no, there's no, and wind is even, wind is even shorter. So wind is just a few weeks to months. And, and then, you, and then with the coal and nuclear, et cetera, if you're just looking at the primary energy of, bull, of burning the lump of coal and uranium, it sounds very good. But when you work out the entire supply chain, all the way from the mining, and, and actually the bottleneck for all of these energy sources is really the mining. I'll come back to that. Yeah. And then, and then you all the way down to the delivery, it turns out that energy payback is not that great. And there's just a recent paper, someone called Brockway, published in Nature Energy, where he goes through the detail of all of it. But the basic argument is very simple. The energy cliff argument doesn't work unless someone is subsidizing these plants secretly, which mm. is obviously not the case. I mean, yeah. it's selling energy, so the energy input must be less than the energy output. It's just, it's, it's, it's just that simple. Well, yeah. there's, 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 there's no cliff because there's no constraint. Is there? I mean, the only constraint if we've got very power, you know, very efficient solar, the the only constraint is going to be the materials involved in in building those those solar farms, and obviously the the land space that they take. Well, up. this was the, if I could just interject, this was the argument of the of the people about talking about the energy cliff, saying that the, the amount of energy it took to construct the solar cells, uh, even amortised over their effective life. Uh, was very high compared to the energy output. Now, what Amo is saying here is, in fact, that's wrong, uh, that the energy input to make them is quite low compared to the energy output over their effective life. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're selling the energy output, so it's a very easy comparison. You're selling the energy output. So if you're selling an energy output for three US cents per kilowatt hour, it obviously costs you less than three US cents per kilowatt hour. What, and what's the, what's the comparative cost of a coal station, if you know that? Well, well, the coal stations are now more expensive. They're about, um, you know, and the tariffs for the coal stations are going something like eight to nine. Right. Okay. So, in fact, what you're arguing is also it's a useful point from my point of view, is that you're saying the payback period is a better estimate than the ROI. 
No, no, the ERI is a better estimate, but I'm just doing the payback. I mean, the ERI is the better estimate. I mean, the different estimates. I mean, the different types of metrics. I mean, I think the ERROI is better, but I'm just giving the payback as an example because that's that's easier easier to um, uh, easier to calculate and find in, in literature. It's easier to work out then that there's no energy cliff because you got the payback in one year. Yeah, that's, got, that's, that's a pretty um, pretty. What have got effective life of what twenty four years after that? You were saying that, that's that's an arbitrary bank bank per lifetime. Actually, the, the solar cell lasts longer, but uh-huh. there's an arbitrary sort of uh, banking. Uh, um, Consensus that it's the bankers finance it for twenty five to thirty years. It's gone up to thirty years right now. Yeah, okay. So it's sort of it's a financing length of. Uh, in terms of again, for my interest, and I hope for the listeners as well, is there any degradation in photovoltaics over time? Yeah. Uh, like, uh, yeah. what, sort of, what sort of decay rate yeah. do we see yeah. there? So, so the, so the uh, arbitrary cutoff line is that after 25 years, the solar cell manufacturer, they uh, guarantee that the degradation will not be more than 80% of its initial power. And it's, it's okay. a linear, and they guarantee a linear degradation profile. So it's, okay. 0. 0.5, so it's 0.5% per year from when you set it up to when it's uh, uh, to the 25-year lifetime. So there's inter- 0. 0.5, it's not, not 5%, but 0. 0.5. 0.5%. Yeah. 0.5. Okay. That's a pretty low rate of degradation. So that's linear as well. So, yeah. Okay. So there's a pretty interesting geopolitical consequence from, from all of this, which might be uh, part of the reason why we're not seeing the take up being so, so fast. I mean, first of all, you know, let's look at the issue of energy poverty. I mean, the areas of the world where uh, energy is difficult to obtain, uh, you know, very often some of the sunnier climes. So presumably the cost will be even cheaper. And there's no need, for, and you alluded to it earlier. There's no point, no need for them to uh, to be importing fossil fuels. But of course, the fossil fuels are coming from some of the richest countries in the world. So there's a a power shift that's happening here. Good good for the planet in terms of uh, uh, resolving some questions of inequality, but uh, bad for the the Western world because it's solving some of the problems of inequality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, 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 and. and- and so that, that is the biggest bottleneck. I mean, the, the biggest bottleneck is how do you migrate? I mean, so, so, to, the, so in, the, in the developed world, you already have plenty of energy. And the energy growth demand is actually not that much. I mean, it's just went up by something like 2% last year. And that's, that's been the sort of biggest growth um, for the last decade. And that's a good thing. But the energy demand is not going very fast in the, in the developed world. But a consequence of that is that there's not that much need to replace the existing fleet of fossil fuel generators. You've already got plenty of energy and these fossil fuel generators, because the whole asset is financed for a fossil fuel, it's much longer than 25 years, it's about 40 years. So they're going to be still plowing ahead for a long time. So there's got to be some incentive or some policy to replace them in the advanced industrialized world and substitute them. With this, and this, this, is, this is where we, I might say this is another important issue in terms of the end. Like you've seen quite a few of my Patreon supporters are engineers involved in power, uh, power generation and so on, including yourself. Um, what I'm, and some of them were arguing in favour of, say, thorium reactors, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one thing which occurred to me, which is obvious, uh, courtesy of the financial sector taking over the planet in the last 30 years, we have so far too many financial engineers and nowhere near enough real engineers so i was worried about if you're going to if the, the thorium argument would mean hey, you've got to develop the technology in the first place uh because the last what working thorium reactor was made, made, made decades ago and b we don't we need the engineers to build them and they're bloody complicated for obvious reasons plants uh we can't scale it up but i imagine you'd saying with solar the scaling up is extremely easy if we had for example to have the target of replacing 
all the coal-fired power stations uh, in the developed world by 2025. Is it feasible to say that could be done by a photovoltaic rollout? Yeah, a sort of photovoltaic rollout and some wind, because of course the sun doesn't shine at night, so you need some other energy sources as well, and some storage, which doesn't have to be batteries. I mean, everyone talks about batteries, but you could have uh, pumped hydro, which is a, a very cheap, and um, uh, you could have it pretty much everywhere around the world. And then now you have the technology where you don't need a pumped hydro, which interferes with the river system. You could have seawater pumped hydro, so you could just use saline water to do it. So, so that's one of the advantages of solar. It's very quick to commission. Just coming to back to Thorium and back to uh, Phil's point about the geopolitics, because that's really uh, uh, crucial to understand. The thorium is a better choice than uranium. Every scientist, engineer, uh, nuclear scientist or engineer pretty much agrees upon that. But the reason you don't have a thorium uh, nuclear industry, uh, uh, commercial nuclear energy, is because it's not, it's the uranium is... Uh, uh, um, boosted by the defense industry. And it's, mm. it's so, you, so you have that financial knock-on effect from the defense industry, which has created the entire nuclear supply chain around uranium. By the way, now nuclear reactors are going out of business worldwide. I mean, even in the U.S., everywhere, it's pretty much, it's pretty much dead in the water. So nuclear industry is they're trying to now design these new reactors, which can go up and down very quickly and ramp up and ramp down. But but that's 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 still miles away. So but coming back to Phil's point, this is this is the geopolitics is really and and more broadly the sociological aspects of how do you switch from one energy source to another is the real bottleneck, and that's what's really dragging everything down. So even with solar and wind now, for example, even with the penetration we have right now, you're getting negative prices in several markets. You can't get cheaper electricity than negative. Right? <laughs> So, so, so we had that in Germany, in California, now even in Australia. So even in Australia, you've got with just with 40% penetration of solar and wind on some grids, you're getting negative prices, zero price, actually, wholesale electricity prices. Can you, can you explain what do you mean? People are actually paying to provide the electricity when it's negative, or are you saying that they um, – just, just to elaborate, that that's, that's a <laughs> – a point I want some more detail on. Yeah, so so that's sort of in the wholesale market. When the, when the uh, in the wholesale market, so what what you have is, uh, um, and for example, in Europe and the in the US, you have the system called day ahead and real time trading. So what happens is, all the all the energy generators, everyone has got an energy gen- electricity generating asset. They all bid for the um, to provide the electricity, say between midnight and one o'clock the next day at a certain price. Mm-hmm. That's the day ahead bid. All of these, all of the, so they all go into the grid operator or the system operator and say, "Here's my bid for how much? This is the price for the of the electricity, which I'm going to provide from midnight to one o'clock tomorrow." And then yeah. the, the system operator picks the lowest lowest offer for each segment, and then the next day they match what's the actual supply versus demand, and then depending upon what's missing, then they then they ask for the real time. Generators are usually battery energy storage or a pumped hydro um, um, uh, energy storage. We can provide our gas, which can quickly ramp up and ramp down to make up for that difference. So that's the real time. So it's the day ahead and the real time. So now what's happening now is that when you get when you get the abundance of solar and wind, what happens is then you actually offer negative prices. Okay, you know the the, the uh, you'll, you'll be paid to take away the electricity. 
Okay, because, but that, that, that's obviously not a sustainable business model. Well, it's 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 not a sustainable business model for the um, 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 generators, but it's great for the country. It's great for the. Yeah, I know, but you, you've got to be great for both of that sort of system. That that's that I hope is not going to be a permanent feature. Otherwise, we'd have bankrupt solar power stations all over the planet. Well, 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 I think, I think you'll, you'll get different business models how to use energy. It, it, it won't become just. A, um, it won't become just. A, um, you come up with some innovative business models. How do you use this commodity when you're going to have negative prices? I mean, yeah. you incentivize people to use it for different things. And then you come into demand response. I mean, you can use it, for example, to desalinate water. So if you've got this excess electricity, you divert it to a function which you could, where you've got sort of elastic demand and you can, you can do positive. Yeah, if you have excess power, you can use it for something like desalinating water. I could take that point. Just one other, a couple other technical points here that matter. Uh, again, this is where my I have a, a basic understanding of engineering, but only only basic. When you look at the current power systems, we've got it's effectively. I've been given the analogy of like a dam that the water is designed to flow downhill, uh, and that's the same thing for the electricity transmission systems for power from uh, coal-fired power stations, gas-fired, whatever, to the end consumer. Now with solar, uh, I know that we're talking about large solar farms, and I'd like you to elaborate on that as well. But there's also, of course, people putting in um, home-based solar systems and generating. First question: Can those yet generate enough power for a house for 100% of the time, given storage issues as well? And secondly, I've seen that when they have excess power, they sell it back to the grid. And the argument I've seen about the difficulty that creates for the distribution system is it's a bit like trying to pump water back up to the dam. Uh, it's much easier for it to flow down, and we don't have the infrastructure. So going to uh, home-based, factory-based solar, uh, and then integrating that has issues about changing the distribution system, which themselves quite mm. challenging. And let so me add like, add, a, yeah. add another element to that last question as well, if you can remember all of this. I mean, how much of that selling back of energy from people's home solar power um, plants on the, on the roof, how much of that is just adding to the, to the base load? So in other words, you know, we, it, it's helping with peak capacity, but that's all. It's just helping uh, power companies not have to plan as much for those peaks. Okay. All right, so I'll, I'll address those three issues, and I'll come back to the I'll come back to the geopolitics because I think that I, I really want to come back to that one because I think that's the main impediment. So let me address this quickly. So first of all, the solar system by itself is not going to um, take care of your household needs unless you also introduce a battery. The reason yeah. it's not going to do it is, I mean, there are several reasons to it. One is you, you're usually away at work when, the, when you're getting most of the solar electricity. So the timing, the supply versus demand timing is not quite right. Mm-hmm. Most people are at work while well, getting the maximum amount of electricity. So you, so you need to balance that. But on the other hand, all people at work and the factories, the peak demand is during the daytime, usually during the afternoon. So mm-hmm. from that perspective, the, the solar system on your roof is really good. And you call that, and there's an expression, the term for it, I think it's called the uh, something coefficient of variation of performance. So, the, because I mean, it, 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 it's it's uh, it, it's the value of electricity doesn't just depend upon. Um, it also depends upon when you're producing it. I yeah, mean, timing, timing as well as the actual power. Yeah. How, how does it manage the demand pattern? So, the aggregated demand pattern suits solar really well, but it doesn't suit the household on an individual level well. Secondly, coming to the grid issue, actually this helps the grid. It's actually good for the distribution grid because what the distribution grid needs is it needs supports at different, there are two types of power. One is the useful power, 
which you extract for working your devices, et cetera. But you also need another kind of power, which is called the reactive power. And the, and the analogy which most people give is it's like the froth in your beer. So when you put, when you, in, you know, get a pint from the pub, you got this froth on the top, which is not the useful beer, but you need that to get the beer through to your pint, if that's uh, clear. So you need this reactive power to get the electricity through the transmission and dis distribution grid. So it turns out that the solar systems, they can provide that reactive power locally. So previously, the distribution company, they had to figure out how do we uh, install these other electric um, devices to deliver reactive power at, at various points in the distribution grid. So it actually helps the distribution grid. Okay. So, so that, so that are, and the reason is that these, this is just electronics. These are electronics interfaces. Now, jumping for a, for a moment from that to the bigger plants, this argument was also given for the bigger plants that you need these fossil fuel power plants to help the grid. Because what the fossil fuel power plant has, is it's got this, what they call a synchronous, uh, uh, synchronous uh, um, um, generator. It's got this huge turbine, which by momentum, it, it uh, manages to regulate the voltage and frequency on the grid. It stabilizes the reactive power on the grid just by its inertia. So mm -hmm. if, the power, if there's a power drop, then that turbine will change um, slowly, and that will help provide some stability. But with solar and wind, you have electronic interfaces. And these electronic interfaces are better than just inertia. They can provide the voltage frequency stabilization in an electronic manner, which is much more precise. So it's not just inertia, you're managing the grid stabilization in real time far better than you could do with these early generator sources. So to sum up the question, it doesn't help your household, but in aggregate, it helps a lot. Mm. And this is why the CEO of the National Grid a few years back, he said solar is the new base load. And, and I think this, the term base load is, is, again, a misconception. Most people think a base load is something which runs 24 by 7, but no energy source runs 24 by 7. Even the coal power plant, it has a, it has a downtime, scheduled and unscheduled downtime. What you really mean by base load is, it, is a, a, a backbone which you can rely upon to provide a certain amount of energy for a given period of time. Yeah. And so it's the like more a floor, it's a floor in effect. Floor. Yeah. yeah. So the more you distribute these energy sources, the better your backbone is. And that's what you get with the distributed energy sources. So it provides a backbone, a more resilience, greater, just by the pure statistics of it, that you've diversified your energy sources. So your grid becomes a lot better using the, um, um, these home solar systems. So it might not be that great for the ho individual household, but yeah. it's certainly good for the grid and for your overall solar supply. But what's the problem there? You run into the problem, of course, with the utilities, because these electricity households, what the, I mean, the, the uh, jargon is prosumers. They're both producers and consumers. They're now eating into the utilities uh, gravy train. Mm. So the, mm. so you, the, uh, now they produce, they've taken off their billing off the off the um, uh, off the utility uh, revenue revenue flow. So that's a re so that's a real killer for the utility company, and that's where the tension is. Although it's so, although it's sort of like um, you know almost like an internet model, 
isn't it? You know, in that it's not a one-way street, it's becoming a two-way street, and internet service providers make their money. Okay, they may be not making as much as power companies are in uh, sending energy one way, but they charge you a service fee. You know, they charge you to be connected, and you are giving and receiving as part of that that connection fee. It just means the, the business model's got to shift. Yeah, the business model's got to shift, and some util- and the utilities want to control it. So there's a bit of a struggle there. The utilities do want to have these so what, and, and, here's, and here's an interesting dynamic. So what happens is there's this regulation called net metering. And what net metering basically means is, I mean, you're selling to the grid your electricity back at the same rate at which they're charging you for it, right? So if, so if your solar system is providing 10 kilowatt hours per day, then those 10 kilowatt hours will get subtracted, will get subtracted from your bill, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, net metering. So what what happens in most places is is utilities encourage start off with the net metering regulation. So they encourage you to set up the solar system on your roof. Then after a few years, they change the regulation. But they say, okay, yeah, because they're losing money out of it. I'm, I'm not going to pay you the same amount for the electricity you're providing to the grid that I'm billing you. So what they do is they very cleverly encourage people to invest in these solar systems on, on their households and factories too. And, and then they sort of roll back the net metering regulation. So there's that tension between the utility and, and the household. And, 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 and there's no power purchase agreement there, right? It's just a regulation which the utility company comes up with. Mm-hmm. So when you do a power purchase agreement, then you're locked into a legal agreement. And they can't sort of unilaterally say, I'm going to not stop paying you this tariff. When you set up a large solar plant and you decide to sell to the grid, and done a few megawatts project, and then you have a, a legally locked in agreement. So I can see, that, I can see a huge opportunity for all of this for somebody to come along with some sort of uh, sort of uh, power sharing uh, agreement that sidesteps. I mean, you need what the power companies have got. Obviously, is the infrastructure. They've got all the cables everywhere. But on a localized level, you know, I mean, you could somebody could replicate that and say, well, okay, let's let's almost have it like have a people's energy uh, supply uh, provider. Absolutely, and that's what some of these people are using this blockchain technology for. And mm. I mean, that's an separate, you know, we're going to, we'll digress a bit with the block with the whole blockchain thing. But they're using this blockchain protocol to come up with this energy sharing between between people, this peer to peer, peer to peer networks, and so that that's that's definitely coming up. And there's some. Uh, pilot projects, for example, in Brooklyn, I think in New York City, there's a there's a pilot project by a company called LO3 or something, and and they're using blockchain to see how do you do peer-to-peer energy sharing. But I mean, practically, and if we want to do this quickly, and one thing which we sort of like haven't talked about too much, but if there's a practical um, imperative, how quickly do we have to shift to these new energy sources, clean energy sources, to prevent you know really devastating climate change, and we have to think about how to do it more quickly. And, and, and it's not happening quickly because of all these sociological reasons. I mean, on one level, it's the geopolitical reasons. And, and on the other hand, within uh, the economies, it's factors like this. I mean, the, the game theory, how do you get the utility to invest in these energy sources, which are going to disrupt its own revenue flow? So it's, 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 it's a tricky issue. It's not a technical issue. Mm. And it's not an economic issue because econo- the economics is already better than coal. I mean, like I mentioned, and this is, you know, verified by several studies, even by the investment banks, mm. that uh, um, the marginal cost and the marginal cost of uh, operating a coal plant or a gas plant is more expensive than the total cost of a solar and wind plant. Now, just a couple of other, you know, let's actually carry on, on on some of the down the 
down the uh, chain implication. Because we're talking about electricity, then obviously that's what you cover: household consumption and factory consumption of energy fundamentally. Uh, but when you look at transportation, we've still got, of course, cars, uh, petrol-powered cars, mm. and then if we're going to go across to electric cars, uh, that brings those issues about how much battery storage do we have, and that comes down to things like lithium and also rare earths. Uh, do we have enough of those to be able to convert the whole globe's uh, vehicle fleet into electric vehicles? So what's this, any, any points there? Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean, I think that the, the main point there is, I mean, the, the rare earths aren't, aren't actually rare. I mean, no, they're hard, they're, they're, that's an important point. They're not, they're not rare. They're just yeah. hard to, hard to uh, just uh, get, to separate from other metals because they, they don't aggregate together like copper or iron do. They yeah, come they're mining yeah. byproducts. Again, we come to this issue of how things are happening commercially for legacy reasons and how do we migrate from what's the legacy method to the new methods. But, I mean, the long run, uh, I mean, the long run answer to this is that all of this is recyclable. And so you have to, I mean, I know you like the expression, the real economy more than the circular economy, but basically the concept, the fundamental concept is all of this is recyclable. So the solar plant, you can take all of it apart and recycle it. As a matter of fact, the solar cells, I mean, initially they started off using scrap from the microelectronics industry, the silicon scrap, because it turns out the silicon which you need for a solar cell doesn't have to be as pure as the silicon you need for the microelectronics industry to use. Yeah. It is one decimal less of purity. So all of this is recyclable, even the batteries. So there's a recent study out, I think it's from Sweden, about the lithium-ion recycling. So all of this is recyclable. There's no, there's no chemical, there's no chemical um, um, uh, consumption here. I mean, you, so when you're burning a coal or burning a lump of coal or the uranium, it's gone. And, that, and that's, you know, so there's a very interesting remark from this uh, wind developer that actually there is the energy payback from a lump of coal or uranium is infinite. I mean, I mean sorry, it's zero. Because uh, once, you, once you burn up the coal, you're never going to get the energy back, right? Okay. On the other hand, yeah. on the other hand, with the wind and energy, with the wind and solar, what you got is you got this recurrent supply. So again, the way I like to think of it is this is a fuel-free electricity source financially because that changes the entire modeling of it. So, if, mm. so I'll, I'll give you an analogy. So for example, if you're going to invest in a stock, you look at two things. I mean, look at what's, its, what, what's the mean returns it's going to give you and what's the volatility of that stock. You know, like Steve did talk about the sharp ratio. Mm. What's the ratio of those two things? What's the mean return and what's the, what's the volatility? What's the risk of around that mean return? Now, with the renewable energy source, with the fuel-free energy source, not only is the cost low, but you also don't have that volatility. So if you had to pick between the two sources, you know, if you had to pick a stock which has a low, higher, higher returns, in this case meaning a lower cost and lower volatility, you'd always pick that stock which has got the higher returns and the lower volatility. Yeah, there's no, there's no, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 there's no, there's no competition. But it's not happening with solar and wind. It's, I mean, it's happening, but not that fast. I mean, the new energy additions, and I think this is the problem which you also have with the solar and uh, wind industries. They're very happy to say, okay, you know, most of the new energy additions which took place last year were solar and wind. We dominated all the new energy additions, but that's not good enough. And so, and so what's, what's stopping this from happening at a faster scale? Even though solar and wind are cheaper, and, the, and even at, at low penetration rates, they're forcing the supply curve of all the generators in a direction that you even get negative prices. You know? 
So despite these, despite this economics, which is why I, I was, you know, contesting the, the what uh, in the in the Bannister podcast that you need something which is it's, it's, the price signals are not there. The price signals are are there, but it's not happening because they're not cheap enough. They're already cheaper than the marginal costs, but it's happening for other reasons. And so coming back to what Phil was talking about, the geopolitics, that's that's a real bottleneck. And now what happens in the developing countries is so. I thought that okay, you know, so you've got this challenge in the in the uh, industrialized ca- uh, countries. We've got mature energy supply chains. How to replacement? It's a replacement issue. How do you replace the coal asset with a wind or solar asset? But in the developing countries, I think that's where the real challenge is. Who have to add energy sources? Who don't have? Um, with the energy per capita is still very low, about you know fraction of what it is, for example, in the U.S. or. Uh, Europe. So why aren't they, shouldn't they be adding solar and wind and not adding coal and oil, Mm. furnace oil and these other uh, uh, dirty sources? But the geopolitics kicks in over there. And what you have is you have sociological, you have have these networks, societal networks, you have fuel importer lobbies in these economies. And those fuel importer lobbies are very strong politically. And, and, and they don't like, and they don't like, you know, they don't, they don't like other sources coming in, and they've, they've, they've actually those those forces are very strong in that underdeveloping economy called Australia. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's got such potential, hasn't it? But it sounds like, from what you're saying, I mean, if you didn't have those uh, those geopolitical concerns, countries with no legacy that have got opportunity for for growth would would have every chance of growing quickly because they've got access to cheaper energy because they haven't got the legacy that the West has got. So happy days in theory. In theory, exactly. And then and, and another analogy there, it's like the mobile phone and the, um, you know, the uh, conventional telecom um, lines. So it's, 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 quite, it's quite similar. And one, one thing which is you also need in an energy source and I want to talk about, we talk about scalability, but if you really want to provide universal electricity access, one quality which you need is not just scaling up you should have, you need a modular source, which you can also scale down. So for example, if I want to provide electricity in the Himalayas or someplace, where it's going to be very difficult to take the grid or some village in the, in the sticks. With solar, you can easily do that because mm. it's modular. I mean, it's, it's, you can both scale up and down very quickly. And the installation speed is very quick. So, I mean, when I got into this field, I thought it's going to grow. <laughs> the reason I got into it, I mean, frankly, is because I thought, you know, it's, it's high growth and it's going to be easy to, um, continue delivering services in the sector, but it's going to keep growing very fast, is that it's very quick to commission. It's, it's, I mean, I'm slightly simplifying it, being slightly glib, but it's uh, akin to just installing some furniture. Whereas with a nuclear or a coal power plant, it's years to commission the power plant. So yeah. it's, you can do about five megawatts a week easily. I mean, and it's just, you know, just multiplying how many people are going to stick the solar panels into the ground. Mm. So the installation speed is very quick. And it's scalable in both directions because it's modular. And yeah. wind is also to a certain extent, but wind, you need a certain threshold speed. Now, even, even, in, even in developed nations, I mean, I guess the, the issue is that it's, it's more localized as well, isn't it? So you can factor in the cost because I know a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of resistance in the transmission of electricity. And uh, a lot of that could disappear if you've got a more localized supply. Exactly. And, and in places like uh, New York's got this now this microgrid program and, and they talk about how much they're saving on the capital costs of mm. upgrading the transmission and distribution networks. Because the, the closer you have the energy source to the point of consumption, the less you need the supplementary infrastructure. 
And, 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 I, and, and in, on that note, I wanted to make another uh, point, that, uh, another analogy that learning from nature. I mean, actually, that's how nature operates. The energy generation source is very close to is very close to the point of consumption. Actually, that's mm-hmm. also true of the human body. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, that's something to learn from. And actually, taking on a global scale, life on the entire planet, it's sustained by photosynthesis. And what is photosynthesis is actually the same as a solar cell. But the only difference is you don't take out the electrons for the electricity. So what happens is they create the cascade of electrons for the photoelectric effect, but then they're used for the internal chemical process. And a solar cell is just basically taking the electrons out before, you, before it starts any chemistry and taking them out into the electrical circuit. The way the entire, so you see, you know, how the entire life has been sustained on the planet. So think about, in you know, a similar approach, we have this distributed and what's called a democratic, it's a very democratic energy source because the other thing is it's ubiquitous all over the planet. I mean, the biggest difference is just a difference of two. So the solar irradiation in the Atacama Desert in Chile is only twice as much as the solar irradiation in Scotland. Mm. So it's, it's very democratically distributed. That's not much of a, a, a difference. And on the other hand, you've got some places you've got no oil at all or no gas at all, and other places you've got orders of magnitude more. So the difference is very low. And as a matter of fact, that difference comes out in the project financing. Mm-hmm. And another bottleneck in the developing countries and everywhere, actually, and this is where, you know, I'm, I think we need people like Steve to really sort of uh, latch on to this, is the biggest bottleneck is actually the capital. It's, that's a, one is the sociological networks and the geopolitics and the fuel importer lobbies and, you know, on a, a lower level, the business models with the utilities and who control the conventional sources, how do you get them to migrate? On the other hand, it's the cost of capital. It's just the, it's, it's how do you provide the capital for um, um, delivering these projects. So what happens is now solar is, I'm going to use solar because it's easier than wind because the solar resource just goes linearly. So if the solar resource in, say, Jordan is twice what it is in Scotland, you'd expect twice as much energy. Not expect, you would have twice as much your revenue line because it just goes linearly. But you will find that the the um, tariff for a solar project, the price you'll pay for a solar project, might be lower in Scotland than in Jordan. What's the reason for that? So the two components of the price, the offtake price, one is the hardware, and the other is the cost of capital. Mm. And actually, what's happening now is the cost of capital is dominating the project financing cost. Mm. Uh-huh. So about 15, 16 years ago, when there were a few modules uh, suppliers, the manufacturing was the uh, bottleneck. So the module suppliers were making a killing by you know, having pretty high prices. But as soon as everyone piled into it, there was no real barrier to entry. And I think this, again, you know, it's a very important consideration when you're thinking about an energy source, which you have to roll out worldwide. There shouldn't be any political or oligarchy oligarchy or oligopoly to control it, like OPEC or something. And you don't have this in, in, in solar. It's just really intense cutthroat competition. So because there's no barrier to entry, it's quite, it's, there's no really technological barrier. It's pretty easy to jump into. So the bottleneck now is actually access to capital. And yeah. actually what determines the cost of the project eventually is the cost of capital. How much is the bank lending it to you for? So that becomes a really useful purpose, doesn't it, for, first of all, foreign aid budgets, but also for somebody like the World Bank to try and uh, uh, remove that obstacle. And we, yeah, yeah, you know, so, 
well on the way to fixing this issue. We're going to have to wrap it up there because we've been talking for way too long. But it sounds like, look, there will be people who are listening to this, Omar, who are saying, oh, this is just, I've just listened to a three-quarter of an hour argument for solar energy. And there'll be people who, you know, who, who uh, are opposed to that. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, the numbers are going to stack up. Forget about the uh, the impact on the environment. I think this is an interesting point to, to, to close with. If the cost is lower, then who can argue against it? And uh, and in a way, it almost negates the need to even discuss the issue of climate change because it's going to be a cheaper solution anyway. It's going to be a, a more efficient way of providing energy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think that's that's a good that's a good way to wrap it up. And um, um, and so I think it's 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 economically it's cheaper solar and wind. They're cheaper than. Um, and that's pretty um, well established now than conventional energy sources like fossil fuels. There's really no no reason to take the risk of you know of, of aggravating the climate, causing a, a ne- negative consequences uh, to the climate. There's no r- a reason to take the risk technically or financially, economically. And then the next thing which we have to think about is so why isn't it happening fast enough? Is it happening fast enough? I say it's not. And I agree with Bannister on that one. So it's not happening quickly enough. But the reason is not the economics. And then we have to discuss what's identify what's the reasons and how do we solve those problems. Mm. I think economics and technology is pretty cut. It's pretty clear cut. No one will dispute it's cheaper. No one will dispute that it's technologically complicated. And it's it's getting better because it's just the competition is so intense that the price keeps going lower. There's this thing called the Swanson's Law, which is, was originally um, uh, meant to be an analogy to Moore's Law in mic- microelectronics, that every year the chip is going to get, the microelectronics chip is going to get smaller. And this, um, um, I think the management consultant, Swanson came up with the idea. Similarly, solar, because it's also dealing with silicon and technology, it's not resource-driven. The cost is going to keep getting cheaper exponentially. And that's happened. It's taken an exponential decay, but the exponential decay is even quicker. I mean, it's even faster than what Swanson anticipated. So the economics is there, the technology is there, but the bottlenecks are one, sociological, geopolitical, and secondly, the uh, access to and cost of capital is determining the price of this electricity. Mm. Okay, and, and if, I, if, I, if I can give it my usual depressing uh, uh, alternative uh, position I've been waiting here. for this. I got a good good, and that is that we've, courtesy of the the fossil morons and the economic morons, we've let the carbon dioxide get far too high in the atmosphere now. I think we're actually seeing ourselves going past tipping points. As I talk here in my tropical abode in Amsterdam, uh, where I think it's thirty five degrees outside, um, uh, we have to get the carbon out of the atmosphere and quickly. And one question is, can, can we use the, the, could solar be any contribution to decarbonizing the atmosphere? Uh, and at the same time, what worries me is that in some ways the energy issues, the easiest of the ones to solve our ex- excessive exploitation of the planet, because it's easy, as I was pointing out, relatively easy to go from one energy source which generates carbon to another that doesn't. Uh, but the hard part is reversing our damage to the biosphere's self-sustainability. And uh, I think, we're going to, I think we're going to be hit with an energy crunch. We're going to have to do a rapid conversion. It won't be something that will leave to market forces. Well, it'll be infrastructure and institutionally driven once we realise just how badly we've damaged the, uh, the climate. Uh, but in the other side of it, 
we have to pull back dramatically in our uses of energy, ultimately, because that's what enables us to exploit the resources of the planet to the point where we've gone past, well past sustainability and we have to reduce. And I think that's, that's, um, that's the, the context for bringing in solar is, is much more complicated than just whipping it. Okay, but on the, on the second of those, on the first of those, right, we haven't got time to tackle that, so let's, let's not do that now about how we remove carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah. But on the second of those, in, in terms of, I mean, if, I mean, solar is obviously only limited by the sun. I mean, surely it's there till the sun stops burning. It is. The trouble is definitely means we can, we can mine the planet till none of it is left. Yeah, yeah. And that's our excessive use of energy on the planet. In terms uh, of the resources needed to build those, those, those solar farms? No, no. In terms of what we do, we hop in cars and, and you know, we fang all over the planet. We, uh, we're, we're, we're mining everything else on the planet to make the goods and services we like to be gobbles, if you like, and that's yeah. destroying the planet's re- reproducible capacity. Yeah. I mean, just 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 quick one. I mean, so I, I mean, I, just getting back to the fusion issue. So I think we have to use. We have a fusion reactor. That fusion reactor has been around for a few billion years, and it's going to be around for a few more billion years. So I think that's the fusion reactor we have to learn how to use, and and we've got the technology to use that. And the good thing is, the material which we need to harvest that fusion reactor, the sun, is silicon, and silicon is the second most abundant material on Earth, and it's very robust, and also it's one of the purest materials we know how to manage to make to the highest degree of purity. So the, all of that fits very nicely, but that's not enough. That's not going to help in taking stuff out of the atmosphere. So we are going to hit and we're not, so we are, and what's already pumped into the atmosphere, it's not easy to take it out. And I, I don't think anyone's going to come up with a solution. It's too complicated. The geoengineering of how, what's the system dynamics of taking it out. So we're definitely going to hit, we're definitely going to hit a crisis. And then I agree with Steve, it's going to be some, you know, compulsory culling or something of, of actions or some really sort of uh, uh, rations or something. I thought you were going to, to say culling of people, though, thinking that is that is drastic. Maybe we'll get well, to that. Maybe we'll get to that as well. That might be indirectly. That might indirectly. I mean, it's 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 might be very provocative to say that, but that might be indirectly um, what's happening. What yeah. will happen? Yeah. 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 All right, well, on that, on that gloomy note, we have to leave it there. Uh, it's been an interesting discussion. I'm sure we're going to revisit it uh, very soon. But, Omar, thank you for your time and uh, uh, to tell, you know, for, for shining a, literally shining a positive light on, uh, on the future of energy. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Phil. And, and just one final remark. Is the energy efficiency is absolutely necessary because it's, it's, you need both sides of the equation. I mean, you definitely need to move to the cleaner energy sources. But without the energy efficiency, we still can't, still can't balance things, even for energy. Just All right, Omar. Thank you for your time, and Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Thanks, thanks, okay, guys. Man. Good to talk. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, I don't know about you, but I took that as uh, some ground for optimism, and that's it. That's the debunking economics podcast for this week. I'm Phil Dobby with Omar Chima joining us this week, and Steve Keen, as always, uh, back again soon. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.